It's wonderful to be together again this morning. As we come to God's Word, we come now into the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. So open with me to John chapter 9. We were a number of weeks in chapter 8, which led us to really zoom in, because essentially in the entire chapter we had two connected, but two public confrontations, two specific interactions, discussions that we were able to zoom in on. If you, as you're open to 9, if you were to glance over chapter 8 right now as a whole, you would remember that it was really concerned with several key issues. It was concerned with matters of light and the source of light from God. And it was concerned with the matter of dependency upon Jesus. Dependency for a number of things as it gave it to us. Dependency upon him for life, for freedom, for rescue. It's all there as you scan through chapter 8. Light, dependency upon Jesus. And now as we come into chapter 9, Jesus is going to come to a man blind from birth and heal him. Rescue him from that. That is not a hard connection to see, is it, from chapter 8 to chapter 9. This man has been living, as we'll see, all his life in physical darkness, and he needs someone to set him free from that darkness. That's pretty simple. But before we read our text for this morning, which will be the first seven verses of this chapter, we need to remember that in coming to chapter 9 now, we are completing a pattern that we have talked about before, that we've tried to notice uh, before, especially early on when we began this gospel. And I want us to be reminded of that pattern that we're following and continuing now coming into this chapter. We saw, for example, at the beginning that, that there is something of a cycle to Jesus' public ministry. In chapters 2 to 4, we saw him do a north-south-north, a Galilee-Jerusalem-Galilee loop. Many call it the Cana cycle. And during that time, John singled out for us two uh, individuals in particular that Jesus meets with and speaks to. It was Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You remember those two zoomed-in, one-on-one conversations. Regarding the two of those, Nicodemus showed very disappointing and sad spiritual blindness in that conversation, while the Samaritan woman actually came to trust in Jesus, as did those in her town. So that was what happened in chapters 2 to 4. In chapters 5 to 10, Jesus does another loop, but it's the opposite. It's a Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem loop that was structured around the Jewish festivals. So for that reason, we call it the festival cycle. We're in chapter 9 right now, so we're finishing that cycle up. And in those chapters, we have... I mean, he talks with a lot of people, lots of conversations with crowds, but we have two more individuals singled out, just like we did in chapters 2 to 4. This time, the two individuals are the paralytic in chapter 5 and the man born blind here in chapter 9. And it's the contrasts there in particular that we should notice as we're coming now to Jesus' confrontation and interaction with the blind man. Some of this was the subject of what you may have seen covered in our newsletter that came out a couple of uh, days ago, so we will pass over some of what was said there, but I want you to remember that pattern here, because if the pattern holds true, 
then we would expect this blind man to wind up surprising us and surprising us in a very positive way. And he does not disappoint as we come to this encounter. This man that we're about to begin to read about this morning, who has never seen a day in his life and has spent any adult life he's had as a beggar on the street, this man will display not only incredible courage and clarity and even wit, he will also respond to what Jesus does by actually seeing the sign of it. He won't simply receive the healing. He will receive the healing and perceive the sign from God that is intended by it. And he will, at the end, believe on Jesus Christ. In fact, just like the Samaritan woman did in the Nicodemus Samaritan woman uh, comparison, this blind man will go from first recognizing Jesus as a prophet to then believing in him as his savior. These things are explicitly brought out and given to us. So this is what we're coming into this morning. And we begin this week by seeing how John is going to set up this latest piece of his narrative. We're going to see that Jesus, not just in the deed of healing this man, but also in the words that he's going to speak to his disciples about it, he makes very clear that this is a tangible display of the self-revelations that he gave in chapter 9. Here is a man who is about to receive both physical light and life and spiritual light and life from none other than the light of the world himself. We'll begin by reading the first seven verses of this chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Speaking of our Lord, John continues in this way. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our Lord does not begin to heal this man until verse 6. But what's said between him and his disciples before that sets the event up. And I hope you noticed as we read that along the way there are some profound topics that are raised and dealt with in just the first five verses here. The way that we'll approach the passage is in two parts. We'll hear first his words in verses one to five, and then we will watch his deeds in verses six to seven. First, his words. And thinking about the first five verses here, there is a single reality that is spoken to 
that we need to give careful attention to. And maybe you can guess what that is. This is centered around the question that they ask Jesus in verse 2, isn't it? Centered around that question. What happens is this. It says, as he passed by. So we really don't have any strong time indicator. How much time has passed since the end of last chapter? Uh, There's nothing clear there. But he's setting us in a scene where they are walking together. They're walking, talking. And as they pass by, they come upon a beggar who is sitting on the ground and begging. It doesn't tell us that there, but we know that's what he's doing because the neighbors at verse 8 are going to say, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? So this is what he's doing. And they pass by him. And it seems that what happens is that somebody, probably Jesus, maybe one of his disciples, engages that man in conversation. They begin to talk with the result that they learn that he has been blind from birth. And that realization produces curiosity and thoughtfulness on the part of the disciples. And they ask Jesus about it. I really like these sorts of details as God's word gives them to us because it's one of those moments that gives us a picture of something of a normal day in the life of the disciples as they live and travel with Jesus. What we hear in this is not some sort of an unnatural movement around or something rigid. Uh, Every interaction between them was not formal or planned out. This is something of an offhanded question that they ask him as a result of what they hear in talking with this blind man. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And it's interesting to me, the disciples do not show up again in the the whole rest of this chapter in terms of being mentioned. So we can tend to lose sight of them in this. But I wonder, I, I suspect the answer is no. Do you think that they had any idea when they asked him this question? Of what Jesus was about to do as a result of them bringing this up and asking this. Do you think they had any idea that he was about to heal this man and that the events of this chapter were about to be launched forward? I think they had no idea of what was coming, but they asked the question. And it it can be a strange question to us, can it? It's not a question that fits well into our modern outlook on things, but it's not a strange question for them to have asked. Most assumed, then, that sin and suffering were intimately connected. And, of course, as Christians, we understand that in a general sense, that is true, isn't it? Suffering and sin are connected. Death entered the world through sin. Without the fall, there is no human suffering. But their question is about something more than that. Their question is about not a general connection between those, but a direct one. They say, who sinned that he was born blind? It's maybe not the way that we would pose that question, but the need they are showing here to wrestle with a question like that really shows them to be not so different from us. We are confronted with things in the world. We're confronted with suffering. We're confronted with loss, pain, and we ask similar questions, don't we? Why? do bad things happen? Or maybe when it's me personally, why is God 
doing this to me? Why has he brought this into my life? Those are kind of questions that are not foreign to us at all, are they? Who sinned? Could it have been him, himself? Some Jews speculated that it was possible to sin in the womb. So we have the writings of some Jewish rabbis, for example, who speculated that that must have been what happened to Esau in the Esau-Jacob relationship. Esau must have sinned in the womb, and that accounts for God's choosing of Jacob over Esau. It's very interesting in light of the light that Paul shines on that whole situation, isn't it? But they speculated about that. There was even some Jewish speculation we have record of, definitely not the common view, but there was some who wrote and wondered whether maybe the soul was pre-existent to our conception and could have somehow sinned prior to that. So that then you have what's happening is when someone is born with physical defects or this sort of thing, the explanation is that poor person, when he was conceived, he happened to receive a soul that had sinned, and so now he's paying for the sins that his soul committed. Such possibilities were wondered about as explanations for the very kind of thing that this man exemplifies. And why would we even go there? Why would we think like that? Well, there is something, if you think about it, there's something attractive to us in our natural way of thinking, to that sort of explanation. Because what it does is, it winds up tying your suffering to your guilt, doesn't it? In a direct way. It feels like a clean explanation, maybe like a just explanation. And it can also mean for a lot of people, doesn't it, that if that's the case, then now, as I see you in your suffering, I don't have to uh, do anything for you. I don't have to feel sympathy for you because you're just getting what you deserve. You can see why mankind would speculate in some of those ways. There's something that can be appealing to our flesh, thinking that way. Could it have been he that sinned? Could it have been his parents? Could his suffering be a punishment inflicted because of sins his parents committed? That was another idea that was thrown about in that time. Perhaps when a woman was pregnant and she sinned grievously, those sins come with the child. He suffers the consequences, the punishment for those sins. It's important to understand this is more than just the notion that our choices affect other people. We know that that's the case, don't we? Certainly the choices of a parent affects their children. Certainly there are sins even a mother could commit while pregnant that can impact physically uh, her child. If you choose to prep your potato salad for next week's fellowship meal with some spoiled ingredients, it's going to affect a lot of us in some very unfortunate ways. Our choices do affect other people. But this is more than that, isn't it? This is an implicit assumption that each affliction that comes to us in this life is tied to a particular act of sin. That's the question. And in his response, Jesus denies that connection. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that says something about two elements of the matter before us. It says something 
First, about God's control and authority over our suffering. But it also says something second about his motivation in the ordaining of suffering in this life. The first of those speaks to God's control. Jesus agrees with something in their question. He agrees with their understanding that God is in control of the way a person is formed in the womb. That is not something that happens outside of the sphere of God's knowledge and control, is it? So that when someone is born blind, not only did it not catch God by surprise, but in fact we would say it was his direct sovereign intention for that person's life. That is the clear testimony of countless places in Scripture. I'll give several of them to you, a small sampling. Amos 3, verses 6 to 8, a series of questions. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I give all of that context just so you can be clear in your mind. The answer to the questions is no. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? His expected answer is no. God reigns over those things. Isaiah 45, 7. I create, excuse me, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What's the point? Where is the authority residing in these experiences of life? Maybe most directly of the ones I'll give to you, Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So to rephrase what we're seeing in passages like these, we could say that this man's blindness must not be thought of as something that happened to him apart from the will of God. It is not fate that chooses our lot in life, nor is your lot in life the result of random chaos. It is God who assigns to us the lot that we receive. In that, Jesus agrees with them. But the next question then, and this is the one that really lies behind their their question, isn't it? It's one of motivation. Why? Why did God ordain this man to be born blind? Why would our God ever assign to us a lot in life that is painful or difficult, or otherwise feels incomplete. That he does it is inescapable. The question is why? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what you have there in the end of that sentence, where he says that the works of God might be displayed in him, is you have what's called a, a henna clause. This could either be giving depending on the context, the purpose of something or just the result of something. 
So he was born blind, and the result is that the works of God will be displayed in him, or he was born blind for the purpose of God displaying his works in him. Grammatically, it could be either one of those. But what kind of question is Jesus answering here? He's answering a why question, right? Why was he born blind? So what he's doing in that clause is he is explaining purpose. That's the kind of thing you say in answer to a why question. You're explaining the purpose. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I'm inclined at this point to make a pretty personal statement about the two of us, about you and me. And I'll try to defend it. That statement would be this. You have not thought enough about that thing he just said. You have not. I have not. And I know I have not because it is the answer to some deep and persistent questions that I deeply wrestle with. And in particular, in hard seasons, we wrestle with questions in those times. And he has answered the questions. It is the answer. And yet we puzzle and agonize often. And I have to conclude from that that what one th- at least one thing that must mean is that we have not thought enough about the statement that our Lord makes here and how the whole of Scripture informs such a statement. What we're finding is this. This situation of a man born blind, that situation in God's hands serves a particular intended purpose. It serves the purpose of displaying the works of God. So if that's true, then what do we find? What kind of God is this? Who is our God then, if that's true? What we find then is that our God is the healer of the broken. Now we can only really understand that if we have the narrative down right. What is the true narrative of our lives, of human history? Here's what it's not. This is not correct. God did not take a neutral, innocent mankind and decide to torment it with all sorts of afflictions so that he could then remove some of those afflictions or bring grace in those afflictions and get the credit for it. That's not the narrative. That's kind of the narrative of the Pixar movie Incredibles. That's what syndrome does, right? It sends the monster on the city so that he can then show up and rescue the city and get the glory for it. That's not the narrative. Here's the narrative. God created man in his own image, good, free of sin and free of sin's consequences. God warned man that rebellion would produce death, and man rebelled anyway. And in rebelling, mankind rightly, by necessity, became a cursed race. God is not only free to, but is obligated by his own character to punish sin. And yet, so gracious is this God that even on the day that that fall took place, he responded with promises of mercy and grace and patience.
He promises us that the worst of that curse will fall on him. And that even as we live out our lives then experiencing the effects of our rebellion, so kind is he to us that, and here's what we find here, right? That our, the whole sphere of our human experience will prove itself to be a theater for the display of the works of God. That's what it will be. Who will it show God to be, that theater production? It'll show him to be the God of Psalm 103. It'll show him to be the God who heals, the God who benefits, the God who redeems, the God who brings from himself a steady stream of undeserved goodness. The works of God are put on display as God reveals himself in that sphere of human experience, as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, as El Yashib, the God who restores. As God works, directs, ordains the lives of our fallen, cursed race, we find here in verse 3 that part of the divine intention is to put his very works on display. Now, in the case of this, uh, this event, in this chapter, we know what's coming, don't we? And we know that on this day, the man born blind is most certainly going to experience that reality in a profound way. But my friend, take note this morning that that is not an exception. What happens on that day is miraculous. It is unusual in that way. But the work that God is working is not an exception. It is revelatory of the heart and character and plans of God in this world and in your life. What does God intend to do with the fact that you endure chronic physical suffering? or were born unable to have children, or have had to live with the emotional damage of growing up in a broken home. What does he intend to do with that sphere? He intends to put his works on display. It may be, one day, by granting relief from that particular struggle, like it is here. It may be by not granting relief, but rather by doing what Paul says that God did to him, in 2 Corinthians 12, by giving you the grace to live in that place, in that condition, in such a way that it astounds and inspires the onlookers in your life. He puts himself on display in a way that puts his enemies to shame. And he uses you. I'm going to need two waters today. This is a bad sign. He, honor, he so honors you as to use you in those ways. So when we identify those places of suffering in our lives, while the unbeliever would naturally grow increasingly bitter and cynical as a result, the believer will be learning the wisdom of trusting God and obeying in spite of those circumstances 
Because he has come to understand that God has willed to put himself on display in that very realm of his life. He has come to see God as his creator, as the owner of all. He has come to see that he is utterly at God's disposal to be used in whatever way God would purpose to use. And it's that great experience and growing expectation on the part of the Christian that allows the Christian to live like no one else. One commentator described this well. He said, when trouble and disaster fall upon someone who does not know God, that person may well collapse. But when they fall on someone who walks with God, they bring out the strength and the beauty and the endurance and the nobility which are within a person's heart when God is there. It is told that when an old saint was dying in an agony of pain, he sent for his family, saying, Come and see how a Christian can die. It is when life hits us a terrible blow that we can show the world how a Christian can live and, if need be, die. Jesus says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Might be displayed in him. Notice the development in that. It is not now just Jesus who is displaying the works of God, is it? God is displaying himself in the lives of others too. Those who have come to Jesus, have come to this light. Those to whom God grants his life, they themselves become instruments of the display of God. And in verse 4, as Jesus brings his disciples into the picture too, he's going to say, we must work. We find, I think, a description of how we should view our opportunities to display God, to put his light on display in the world. Look at verses 4 and 5. We read this. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's interesting. John's gospel doesn't include, for example, the Sermon on the Mount that we have in Matthew. But by this time, Jesus has already told his followers there, and likely in, as, in something of, a, of an exemplary way, he's probably said this in many other places in time, speaking to disciples as well. He's told them there, you are the light of the world. We know that Jesus is uniquely the light of the world. He told us that in John 8, 12. But this light that he has shared with us is a manifestation of that light. He shares that with his disciples as well. Paul will say in Acts 13, 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, quote, I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Of course, he's speaking there of his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. But God speaks of this commissioning and the sending of his disciples in those terms, making us a light to the world. So when he says here in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I think it's fitting, not only fitting, but right for us to take from it, to gain for ourselves a sense of urgency 
In other words, he, in saying that, is modeling something for us. He's modeling how we are to view the time that God gives in this life. We must work God's works while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Someone put it this way. They said, for Jesus, it was true that he had to press on with God's work in the day, for the night of the cross lay close ahead. But it is true for everyone. We are given only so much time. Whatever we are to do must be done within it. Christians have a duty to fill the time they have, and no one knows how much that will be, with the service of God and of others. There is no more poignant sorrow than the tragic discovery that it is too late to do something which we might have done. And so what follows then, as he again reveals himself as the light of the world, but even brings his disciples into the work of manifesting that light. Coming into verse 6, we clearly find that he is now doing what he's about to do in demonstration of that mentality. Verse 6 says, having said these things, he, and now we turn to the deed itself, to the miracle itself. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I mean, for such a profound and powerful miracle, it's actually, uh, it's, it's very simply put there, isn't it? Very understated. Jesus, who John has now long been emphasizing and emphasizing to be the one sent from God. Has that been a theme we've noticed? We're just starting chapter 9. You know, this is the 35th time that the notion of God sending has been mentioned. That's what you call a theme that John is bringing out. This one, sent from God, sends the man to wash in the waters of the pool of scent. The waters, interestingly, that we read about in Isaiah 8, 6, which says, in speaking words of condemnation to the people of Israel, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah, it's the Hebrew way to say this, because this people has refused, Fused the waters of Shiloah that flowed gently. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. Where do you go for rescue and refuge? Go to the gently flowing waters of Shiloah. Refuse them, and you will have waters coming to you. The rushing waters of God's judgment. Jesus says, go to those peaceful God-sent waters and wash. And with as little fanfare as possible, it says, he went and washed and came back seeing. I mean, later in this chapter, it's going to be spoken of as a miracle that no one's ever seen in the history of the world. Healing a man who was blind from birth. He went and washed and came back seeing. Now, if you're like me, and like most people, I think, the element here that makes us think is Jesus' use of these means to work this miracle. Spit and mud. Why did he do what he did? And that is a question that has a lot of speculation. I won't lie to you. There are quite a few suggestions as to what symbolically might be intended here. Everything from, well, there's healing properties in spit. 
So that's what's going on. To, uh, we were made from the dust of the ground, so this is a, an instance of recreation. As God grants renewed eyes to, uh, well, he, he had to give this guy something to do because to be healed, the man had to really believe and show it with some action. So he had to give him something to go wash off, which I've never understood how anyone can go that way because it so ignores the common experience, right, of Jesus healing people who don't even know what he's doing, much less put conscious faith in his ability. But it is good, I think, for us to walk through this question thoughtfully. I think there are some things, tangible things we can gain from this. Why did he use these elements? Would you agree that Jesus didn't need to do it that way? He has healed people in a great variety of ways. He's healed with a word of command. He's healed with a prayer to the Father. He's healed with no words at all. Uh, He has healed someone he can touch. He has healed someone in a different city than where he's standing. Sometimes he uses, he incorporates physical means like this. Other times, and usually he does not. He didn't need to do it this way. If he didn't need to, why might he have decided to? So a question for us to have in mind here is, how many other times, well, how many times have we seen Jesus do something purposelessly? Is that the pattern we've come to expect from our Lord? Casual, I didn't really think about it, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Is this how our Lord marches through his earthly ministry? We don't see that. Not at all. Consider a few other instances we have of Jesus working. John 6, we've seen this here, before he feeds the 5,000, he asks Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And it says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. We saw in chapter 2 of this gospel that Jesus, before he turned the water into wine, you remember what he did? He ordered them to take that water and pour it into Jewish ceremonial wash basins, fill them up to the brim. Then they drew the water and he turned it into wine. We talked about the purpose there. We've seen him speak, not in this study, but we see in the New Testament, as Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler and tells him to sell everything that he has and follow him, and he'll have treasure in heaven. He didn't say that to other people. Why did he say it to that man? Well, he knew what was in that man's heart. He knew full well what was holding that man back. And in one sentence, he lays it bare, doesn't he? Why does Jesus do the things he does? He does them because everywhere he goes, he is teaching. He is bringing the truth to light everywhere he goes. Always bringing the light. In this particular case, there are a number of possible lessons that this may have brought to their minds. Uh, Some of them, honestly, it's quite possible that they may have immediately been apparent to his original audience, and over time, the significance of those things has been lost to us. That's quite possible. He uses saliva in a couple of other instances. Um, I would point some things out here about this. In this case, he takes that saliva and mixes it in his hands with dirt to make a paste. Another word for that is kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. That's one of the 39 forms of work that violate Sabbath law. 
you can get in trouble to, for, for doing. And as we might expect by now, what will we find in verse 14? It's the Sabbath. He's done some things intentionally in that way before. Many have ventured to speculate on the particular lessons that we find here with saliva and dirt. And I don't want to go through all of those because I think there are some things that we can take from the fact of it alone. But I do want to just tell you about one of those considerations that I read about this week and I think there could, there could be some real merit to. I'm quoting here. In the Old Testament and later Jewish tradition, Palestinian Jews believed that all forms of human excretion, including things like saliva and breast milk, all were forms of ceremonial pollutant, in which case Jesus may be doing what he does elsewhere, making a point about his uniqueness regarding cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. What makes others unclean in him produces the opposite. So maybe you see the idea. It may have been something of a similar effect here to what was had when Jesus would reach out and touch the lepers. That usually makes you unclean. But the opposite happens, doesn't it? He touches them, and he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. That's a possibility. I just bring that one up as an example to hopefully convey that there are a number of possible ways that Jesus' particular activity here was teaching the people he was watching because of the means that he chose. And when we think of the sorts of examples like this one and others that I, I went through, of all the very creative ways that Jesus worked in the lives of individuals, each of which seemed to have shown his intimate knowledge of them, right? And exactly what they needed to see, to experience, to go through. When we think of those things, and then we remember that this Jesus is the one enthroned and sovereign over every detail in my life. That is an incredible comfort to the believer. Because what it says to us is that he is not, he is not limited, is he? He is so not limited to the use of a particular means to be at work in the lives of his children. Always, in any lot he brings to us, he is working. We often say, rightly, that marriage is a tremendous means in God's hands for growth and sanctification. That's true. Does he call everyone to a life of marriage? No. When God's plan is singleness, guess what? He has many, many other means of sanctification and growth. We think of the midlife of our Existence as a season of tremendous productivity potential. And rightly so in, in, in those terms. And sometimes both before that season as children and after that season can be frustrating in those ways because we would like to be able to do more or have more productivity. But what do we find here? Don't you worry. When that season is long past and gone, your Savior is more than capable of making use of you in ways you cannot even imagine. There are not limits on the means that our Lord uses to work in and through us, to sanctify us. We could spend an hour going through examples of that, couldn't we? There is no sphere that the Lord will bring us, in other words, that he is not facing limitless opportunities as to how he will choose 
to bless, work, sanctify, humble. Our Lord is not a one-trick pony, and we see that in all of the different ways that he works in the New Testament in his earthly ministry. In the case of the events before us, though, the work that we're seeing here of the healing of this man bore a particular significance to the truth about who Jesus is. This man has been in the dark from birth. But in the fullness of time, the light of the world has now come into the world. And he has not come to be served, he has come to serve. He has come to bless by displaying the light, the love, the life of God to a people who walk in darkness. And when he does that, the result is not just what we have found this morning. The result is also what we will find in the next couple of weeks. There will be change and transformation of a sort that the world will say is not possible. It will be denied. It will be mocked. It will be put away. Because it itself becomes its own display of that very same light. And the world hates the light. Because to come to the light is to admit that you cannot see. It's to admit that there is something broken. There is a need that needs to be met. And pride must insist that it is just fine. Thank you very much. My friends, what a good reminder our Lord has given to us this morning. That so often what we find in the physical is a physical manifestation of something that we find in the spiritual as well. Our physical needs and trials and pains bear witness to the reality that all is not right. All is not as it should be. And our Lord put the priorities in place very well between the temporal and the eternal when he asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What we find this morning is a reminder that our Lord is not tied down to the use of one particular means to prepare his children for eternity with him. He may do it with any number of means, and mine will likely not be the same as yours. It's enough to know that he loves us and that he is making us useful instruments in the hands of our Father by the things that he brings into our lives. And have we not seen this morning as well why we should so long to be made useful tools? Because we've been reminded here as well that there are only so many days of daylight left in our lives. Night is coming. So let us work while it is day. Let us make hay while the sun shines. It's a reminder, a clarification for us this morning to work to balance godly contentment with godly urgency. Biblical contentment does not mean complacency. It does not mean a misuse of the time and opportunities and giftings that God has given us. There is a godly sense of urgency as we recognize our own mortality. And all the while, the God who gives sight to the blind is steadfastly accomplishing all his good purposes in and through his children. 
Would you pray with me? Father, how kind you are in the things you have commanded of us, in the patterns of our life that you have called us to obey you in, to obey your word in. It is those commands that lead us to gather together as your people in these ways, to regularly, steadfastly prioritize our public worship of you. Because it's in places like these that you ordain to so bless and sanctify in these unique ways. Lord, we thank you that as we gather around your word and as we do it week after week, what you are doing is you are leading us like the good shepherd. You are the one who knows all things. You know our frame. You know our temptations, our limitations. You are the one who sees and has declared the end from the beginning. And as we go through our lives, you are the one who knows what is the next, what are the other pitfalls, dangers, misunderstandings. And so, Lord, thank you that as we go through your word, you are constantly protecting us, redirecting us, bringing balance to our walk as we seek to follow after the light of the world and to stay on his path. We thank you for how you've done that this morning. God, we do pray. I pray for us all, but in particular, Lord, I pray for those in our body right now who are in the midst of one of those very difficult seasons where it can seem so dark and where the temptation to question and despair can be so near. Father, I pray that you would protect them, not just protect them, but that you would bring the light of your word to rescue them from danger in those moments. Help them to, to grab hold of the truth that we have seen today, that in all those seasons, you are not far you are very near. You are near to the brokenhearted. And you are not inactive. You are very active in those moments. Father, help us to walk alongside of one another in such ways, with great love and sympathy and care. Locked arm in arm, helping one another as we walk forward. We thank you too, Father, this morning for the reminder to us to pursue the opportunities and the works that you lay before us with a sense of urgency, a proper sense of urgency. We give the timing to you. You are the one who has numbered our days, who has numbered even the days of particular seasons. We trust you. Lord, help us to be faithful. And above all, Lord, we thank you for the faithful one, the one who always did the deeds of his Father and the one who stands in a representative way on our behalf. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We acknowledge, we, we rejoice in the fact that apart from his perfect obedience, apart from his sacrificial death, there would be only judgment awaiting us, and rightly so. Thank you for Jesus, and we pray this morning in his name. Amen.